0: Well, let's see who we got on the roster today. Let's see here. Coming all the way from Florida Bible Institute to offer us words of inspiration, we have a Mr. William Frank Graham. Uh, just Billy, sir. Okay. Folks, welcome. Just Billy. (laughs) Uh, you about ready, sir? Ready for what? Oh, yes, Ready, go get it. I'm going to sit down now. Billy, can't wait to see what God's got in mind for you. You mean that in a good way? Yeah, Billy. I mean that in a good way. Um he was a guy that had all kinds of worldly potential. Um he actually wanted to be a baseball player and he had lots of talent, but when God got a hold of him, he put all of his strength, all of his passion, all of his energy into doing what God wanted him to do. And Billy Graham, the mod, you know, the evangelist of our day was the perfect example of meekness. And that's what we're going to talk about today, meekness, uh, as we continue through the chapter uh Matthew 5. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew is writing about the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And people had gotten word that there was this traveling rabbi uh, that had been preaching and teaching like nobody had ever heard before. And there were rumors that he was even healing people. So people were flocking to Jesus. Uh, that's an interesting word, flock. Uh, not as in birds, but as in sheep, right? They were flocking to Jesus. And so he takes this moment to grab his disciples, and they go up on this hill, and he begins to talk to them about the principles of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God looks like and what a citizen of that kingdom looks like. And Jesus needed to clarify exactly what he was doing because the people of that day had all kinds of ideas about what the Messiah was going to be like what he was going to do. Now, they all agreed that the Messiah was going, to, um, was going to restore Israel's place in the world because, after all, they were God's chosen people. The Pharisees expected the Messiah to come in great fanfare and a mighty show of supernatural power. They assumed that the Messiah would throw off, miraculously, the yoke of the Romans and that he would restore the new Jewish state, and that they would rule over the earth, um, and then others like the Sadducees, who were more earthly, more temporal-minded, uh, thought that you know the Jewish people would excel through political compromise. And another group, the Zealots, the Zealots, they were the most, um, you know, they were the most passionate proponents of independence from Rome, and they took a lot of measures to do that. They expected the Messiah to come as a military leader, as somebody who was going to come and lead a great army and free them from the Romans. These are the guys that probably would have been uh, the most active on social media uh, if they lived today. But Jesus actually had a zealot in his group. He actually chose Simon the Zealot to be part of his disciples, and he must have really scratched his head when he listened to Jesus talk about what the kingdom was actually Actually going to be. But whatever uh, ideas they had of the Messiah, they certainly didn't expect him to come as a meek and humble Messiah. Uh, the idea of a gentle and uh, meek Messiah was so far removed from their thinking and from their concept of what his kingdom was going to be like. The only things that they understood really was military power and and miraculous power. If you think about back in the Old Testament, uh, God delivered his people miraculously and then also militarily through the battles where he, you know, actually fought for them. Those were the two things that they expected. They did not know the power of meekness and Jesus did not fulfill their expectations, everything that they expected the Messiah to be. And because he did not fulfill those expectations, they killed him. And he didn't fulfill them. In fact, he often preached against their ideology, against their ambitions to overthrow the Roman government. Uh, they would say, this guy cannot be the Messiah. He's telling us to turn the other cheek. Like, he's telling us to go the extra mile, to pray for our enemies. This guy can't be the Messiah. He's too, he's too meek. He's too gentle. So... We will continue in Matthew chapter 5 today. We're going to read kind of what we've covered so far, and then we're just going to do verse 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. The death and resurrection of Jesus was one of the biggest hurdles to the apostles' teaching. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he wrote, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Like, how can you say that the Messiah came and died for us? How is he the one that died for us? How is he humble? How can that be? Because great causes aren't led by humble people. They're led by proud people, right? That's what they believed. And a lot of people still believe that. Uh, We've seen that quite a bit over the last couple years. But their eyes had been blinded. They had skipped over passages or forgotten passages in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah, that talked about, yes, the Messiah was going to be a king, but he was also going to be a suffering servant. He was also going to be an outcast, a person who was rejected by the religious authorities of that day. And this verse that we read here in Matthew 5, um, he's talking to his disciples and he's quoting something out of the Old Testament. And in Psalms 37, listen to this, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So here we have two verses, verse 9 and verse 11, which are kind of mirroring each other, saying the same thing. Those who wait will inherit the land, and those who are meek will inherit the land. So what does waiting have to do with meekness? Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, he writes this, But they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Right. So by waiting on the Lord, we inherit the land and we receive new strength, Um, a new strength, not a strength of our own, nothing that we can kind of conjure up on our own. It is the strength that only God can give us. So there's waiting and there's strengthening and there's inheriting the land. And who are the ones that wait? They're the meek, right? The meek are the ones that wait on the Lord. Um, the proud are the ones that kind of strike out on their own. They go do things in their own strength without thinking about praying, without thinking about doing things first with God as the center. And that word that's used here in the Greek uh, translated meek is also translated humble or gentle. And in contrast to characteristics like quick-tempered, being arrogant or being proud. And there is a misconception, or there used to be, that meekness was weakness. That Meekness, since it entered gentleness, blessed are the gentle, looks like weakness, but it's far from it. Uh, It's also defined as one who can bear provocation without being inflamed by it. Or, in other words, a person that can withstand verbal and emotional assaults without losing their head or losing their heart over it. And of course, the meekest person who ever lived was Jesus. And in Matthew 11, we find one of the few statements that he makes about himself um, biographically, if I can say it that way, about his character. And he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. There was another man who was incredibly humble, and that was the man Moses. He would have been a distance runner-up in this category, but he was an extremely meek person. And in Numbers 12, uh, verse 3, says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. That's kind of funny because... Moses wrote numbers. <laughs> but he was incredibly, me- I agree with him on this point. I agree. He was the meekest man. Both of them endured a lot of provoking, didn't they? Um, Moses, time after time after time, was provoked by the people. He was accused by them in the desert. People questioned his leadership. Uh, they questioned his position. They questioned his, intent- his intentions. Remember, when God was going to wipe them out. He said, stand back, Moses. I've had it with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you. Moses went before the Lord and he prayed for the people and he asked the Lord not to do it. He was an incredibly meek person. He didn't retaliate against the people. 40 years in the desert, he had been leading these rebels and one day it got the best of him. One day, He lost his cool. Uh, The people were complaining because they were thirsty. They didn't have any water. And so they were pressing in on Moses. They were coming down hard on him. And he went to God and said, God, what are we supposed to do for water? And he said, I want you to go out, and I want you to go out to that rock, and I want you to speak to the rock for water to come forth, and water will come out. And as he was going there, the people were pressing in on him. They were provoking him to the point where he got so frustrated, he took his staff, and he hit the rock. He just smacked the rock. And water came out, but he didn't do it God's way. He didn't do the way God asked him to, because in that moment, it was more about Moses and his frustration than about God and his glorification. And unfortunately, that instance where he lost it, God said, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land. You're going to have to stay behind. You know, that's, that's a pretty, it doesn't seem fair. I'll say it that way. It doesn't seem fair. I get provoked seemingly about, you know, once a day, once a week at least. Moses lost his cool once in 40 years. He didn't do things the way God told him to. God said, you're going to have to stay behind. Then we have Jesus three years, his ministry constantly being under fire by the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It seemed like wherever he went, there was a scribe or a teacher of the law ready to, to test him or to try to trip him up, catch him in his words. But when they couldn't trap him in his words, they lied. They told people that he did things, that he said things, that he never did. But here's something about meekness. Meekness doesn't defend itself. It doesn't defend itself. It doesn't feel the need to do that. Paul writes in Romans, uh, Romans 12, 19, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. Their jealousy and their accusations led to Jesus's death on the cross, but he didn't retaliate. In fact, it says that like a sheep before his shearers, he opened up not his mouth. He didn't say anything. He was meek. Meekness is not weakness. The best definition that I've heard of meekness is strength that's been yielded for a specific purpose. Meekness is strength that's been yielded for a specific purpose. Jesus's purpose was to go to the cross and he was submitted to the father. Um, I have this picture up here of these horses, just these gigantic horses with these little girls standing in front of it. I mean, I don't know if anything could be starker in comparison than these, you know, little girls staring up at these huge horses. Um, Has anyone ever been out to Grant's Farm in St. Louis? That's where they keep the Clydesdales. Clydesdales from the commercials, they are incredible. We use the word awesome too much. You stand next to one of those horses, they are awesome. Um, We use that word, but, um, you know, to describe these horses, but they are incredibly meek creatures at that point. Uh, horse trainers use the term uh, for training wild horses, horses that have been uh, broken, what they call it, but they will say that they have been meeked. They could now be ridden. They were no longer wild. Um, they could now could be used for a purpose. So I wouldn't call these horses weak, not necessarily gentle. They wouldn't have to be um, they have been yielded, their strength and their muscles, everything is now going to be used for a specific purpose. Uh, when you look at them, uh, those Clydesdales, they put them in those wooden stalls, and I guarantee if they did not want to be in there, they wouldn't have to stay there. Um, but they, at that point, had been meeked. They're now beneficial to their masters. Uh, the first person that God called into covenant was Abraham, and Abraham was a very meek guy as well. When Abram set out from Ur when God called him to go to the promised land, he went rather slowly. He kind of took his time. And at one point he stopped, he was with his nephew Lot, and they both had very large herds. They had lots of herdsmen. And at one point, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen were fighting. They were bickering back and forth over the land. And so Abram took Lot up to this hill and they overlooked the entire area. And he said, listen, Lot, nephew, you choose take a look at the land. You choose which way to go and I'll go the opposite way. We're family. We shouldn't be fighting. Let's separate for a while. And so Lot looks over and he chooses the best grazing land, the best pasture land. And Abram goes in the other way. Now, was Abraham, what was he doing? Was he being weak, deferring to his nephew? Like, why should he defer to his nephew? But he gave him the first choice, and he went in the opposite direction. He actually went to a place called Hebron, where he set up an altar to the Lord and worshiped there. And unfortunately, Lot chose the area close to Sodom. That's where he chose. That was great grazing land, but not a great place to raise a family. Later on, Lot caught up in a war, gets caught up in a battle where all these kings come down and they're fighting over that area. And Lot and his family get taken captive. They get taken off. And Abraham hears about it and he gets 318 of his trained men. So he had 318 trained men. That's a lot of people, but not compared to an army. But Abraham was very, very savvy. He came up with a military plan and they routed the army and they saved Lot. So Abraham was a meek guy, But he was also a warrior. He was also somebody that could use his strength for a specific purpose. But he was yielded to the Lord. Uh, David was crowned at that place, Hebron. That's where he was actually um, declared king. And before he was king, he was being chased relentlessly by King Saul. King Saul wanted to kill him, he wanted to take him out. And at one point, uh, you might remember, David and his men were hiding in this huge cave. And Saul is chasing them down. And Saul, at one point, they want to get out of the heat, so he goes into the cave to rest. Uh, doesn't know that David and his men are in the back of the cave. And he lays down to rest. And David's mighty men say, this is it. This is your chance. God has delivered him into your hand. You can take him out. This is your chance to take the throne. And David said, I won't do it. I'm not going to avenge myself. I'm going to leave room for the wrath of God. Um, he will take care of it in his time. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Even though they were encouraging him to do, to do so, he yielded to the Lord. Uh, that verse that I mentioned in Romans about leaving room for the wrath of God was actually out of Deuteronomy. So he was quoting, you know, one of the books of Moses. He had written that. So David was aware that he needed to leave room For God's wrath to let him take care of it in his time. Moses was supposed to be the next king of Egypt. I could have said, what about David and Moses? What about David and Moses? (laughs) Um, He was supposed to be the next king of, of Egypt. His whole life, he was royalty, told that he was going to be a king. But when God called him, he yielded all of his strength for God's purpose. He became a servant. Uh, he led this whole nation out of Egypt. It would have been easy for him to set himself up as the, next, as the first Hebrew king. He could have done that. That would have been easy. He could have acted out in his own strength. Pharaohs at that point were thought to be gods. So he could have set himself up, but he knew where his strength come from. And he was called the most humble man on the face of the earth because he spoke with God face to face and he yielded himself for his purpose. Uh, Paul was incredibly meek. Uh, completely yielded to God and his purposes. Uh, He had everything going for him vocationally, uh, everything going for him religiously. He had a bright future as a young Pharisee. uh, But later on, he writes that he put no confidence in the flesh, that everything he did in his own strength was just like filthy rags. Um, He said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Um, but he was also trying to unify the churches. He was trying to get them to yield to the Lord and yield to each other. Uh, because once we are unified, once we're yielded to the Lord, then we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We can be useful to the Master, not only in the church, but also out in the word, or in the world, doing his work. And of course, Jesus was God in the flesh, uh, the ultimate example of strength that was yielded for a specific purpose. Uh, Jesus was the rightful king, but he made himself the servant of all. In Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 8, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he um, was you know, the perfect example of meekness. And probably one of the best examples of this happened in the garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18, uh, starting in verse three. This is just an incredible story. It's one of those that we kind of read through and we read through too quickly. Uh, If we don't, you know, kind of, if we're not paying attention, we lose some of the impact as what happened in this situation. In verse three, it says, so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So we asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when you read that at first, you kind of don't get the impact that they came to Jesus to arrest him. And they asked him, you know, Jesus asked him, who are you after? And he said, I am. And they all fell down. If you remember when, you know, Moses was up on the mountain with the, you know, burning bush. And he asked God, when I go to Egypt, they're going to ask me, who sent me? Who should I say? What is your name? And God said, my name is I am. Tell them I am sent you. So they come to Jesus. He says, I am. And they all get blown away, which I think is a pretty awesome story. So here you have Jesus who just knocked them all down and Judas. And, you know, he was quite clearly in charge of the situation, but he gave himself up because of his submission to the father. There's a similarity here that I saw Um, in Deuteronomy. Moses stands in front of the people after 40 years in the desert, he stands in front of them and he starts giving them the history of their people, starts giving them a discourse on the law and how they're supposed to live as people of God. Then you have Jesus after 40 days in the desert, now standing up in front of his disciples, not giving them the law, but giving them the principles of the kingdom, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to live in God's kingdom. Um, you know, the blessings that we receive from the Lord, from being um, submitted to him, are only those that can, you know, submit to him and claim him as king of their lives, submitting to his leadership. Uh, oftentimes, leaders are a bit full of themselves. I think we've noticed that over the last couple of years, that our leaders um, have not had the interests of people, but mostly of themselves. But here we have Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, who choose to serve and use their strength for the benefit of others. James three thirteen says, "Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom." Basically, if you have somebody in your congregation who wants to be a leader, like let them prove it by their actions. Let them prove it by being a servant for the benefit of others, not high and mighty but sharing what he knows in meekness and gentleness. All right, all of that covers blessed are the meek. And I still haven't gotten to the 144,000 yet. So (laughs) if you don't know that, you need to go read about the 144,000. That's just as funny that he covered that in the first four minutes. He started off well. You guys are sinners. And then at the end, you need Christ. In between, seemed like it was a little bit crazy. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, This is the only beatitude that talks about inheriting something earthly, or at least it would seem. Uh, When you read through it, it just doesn't make sense. And as a Christian, it shouldn't make sense. Um, It's one of those verses that can make you scratch your head, but we owe it to ourselves to dig in, to kind of find the truth of it, to mine it out as to what Jesus is saying there. Because it sounds like, happy are the people whose strength is yielded to the Lord for his purpose, for they will get all the world has to offer. But we know that's not true. It sounds like the prosperity gospel, which a lot of people would be happy to hear about, but that's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's teaching. Um, remember, this is the upside down kingdom of God, what he is describing. Um, where did Jesus say that he would, Jesus, um, quote from when he was talking about, you know, this meekness? He was quoting from Psalm 37, right? I'm going to read it again. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So we have addressed... The meaning of meekness and some manifestations of meekness, now we're going to shift into the inheritance of the promise. So when David wrote this psalm in Psalm 37, he was speaking about a future kingdom. They had already inherited the land, but he's speaking of a future time, a future land with a peaceful inheritance that those are submitted to God. Um, his son Solomon inherited a peaceful kingdom. That's quite the gift to leave your son as the incoming king, to leave him a peaceful kingdom. David had done all the hard work of clearing the land of all their enemies, of getting rid of them so that Solomon could inherit that, that he could enjoy the benefits of it. And, you know, that's one of the things that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, I am going to do the hard work of defeating the enemy, of clearing it out so that you guys can enjoy the benefits of the land, the inheritance. So if it's not worldly things, what is it? The Old Testament spoke of when it talked about the promised land, uh, the promise that was literally the area that God had given them to live in. Um, God's promise to Abraham, the old covenant. But in the new covenant, the New Testament, the promise of inheriting the land is literally the promise or the promises of God. So I kind of took the liberty of writing this out in plain language, kind of as I understand it. Um, This is the NLT version, or uh, Nathan's literal translation. Uh, Happy are those whose strength is yielded to God for his specific purpose, for they shall inherit the promises of God. So we'd be here all day if we started going through the promises. Obviously, we have those, you know, God's promises books back there. But I'll just list off a few. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is your Lord, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Matthew 10.39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and 29, we just read this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These promises of God, um, a lot of times are if-then statements. If my people do this, then I will do this. If you lose your life, then you're going to save it. If you come to me, then I will give you rest. If you confess, then you will be saved. This has to do with our behavior and our response to the Lord, but also his response to us when we respond to him. If my people will do this, then I will do this. You might say, well, Nathan, that's nice, uh, but what about all the people now that don't submit to the Lord? They don't submit to, to God, and they seem to be living very good lives. They're living their best life now, and it seems like they're getting ahead. David even asked, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? Why does that happen, God? And we ask the same question. But the wicked person's judgment will come just as the righteous person's blessing is coming as well. When we have an eternal mindset, when we let God settle all the accounts, whether judgment or blessing, that he will do it in his way, in his timing, then we're going to be blessed. I said last week that Jesus himself was telling the people of that day, all of you that are partying it up right now, those of you that are laughing now, later you're going to mourn and you're going to weep. For the people who reject God, the ones that were standing there when Jesus was being accused, and they said, we will not have this man rule over us. And that's what people say today. When they're supposed to submit to the Lord, they say, we will not have this man rule over my life. They may enjoy some of the earthly benefits now, but later their destiny is going to be mourning and it's going to be weeping. But our future is secure. In First Corinthians uh, chapter 3, it's 18 through 22. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. For it is written, he catches the wives in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So the promise of a future inheritance gives us hope now and happiness now, but we also can appreciate all of the things that he gives us because of the promise that's coming later, the inheritance that we're going to have. Um, You know, this is as bad as it gets for the believer. Anything that happens to us in this life is as bad as it gets for the believer. But for the non-believer, this is as good as it gets. Like, that's the reason that they don't mind lying and stealing and cheating to get all that they can because this is all there is. At least that's what they think in their minds. Meekness is so important because it's necessary for salvation. Only those who belong to the king will inherit the land and his rule. Psalm 149.4 says that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble or the meek with salvation. It's also necessary because we can't witness effectively without it. Uh, pride will always stand between your witness and the people that you're trying to witness to because if you're not meek, they're only going to see you. They're not going to see Jesus. If you want to, people to see Jesus, then we need to approach with meekness. When we're meek, we can bear insults without lashing out pridefully or with retaliation. We thank God in every circumstance, and we can use those circumstances as an opportunity to submit to him. Meekness would be weakness if we yielded to sin, but we don't. When we yield to God in meekness, it is a great strength. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and strong as Samson, but he stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing, but in Christ, everything. That is his motto. And I said this before, that without him, we can't but without us, he won't. Without him, I can't, but without me, he won't. He wants to partner together. We can do nothing without him. He wants us to come alongside him in meekness and work with him, carry out his purposes in the world. So how do we practically cultivate cultivate some meekness into our lives? Psalm 103.14 says, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. And the first thing we need to do is manage our expectations of others. Uh, we really do. We have very high expectations of other people. We have relatively low expectations for ourselves. And if God remembers how frail we are, then we would do well to remember how frail people are as well. Um, we're all sinners in process of um in the process of redemption, in the process of sanctification. We are all in that together. None of us is perfected, so we'll do well to remember that of other people when we have a tendency to get frustrated with them. We also need to remember how much we've been forgiven of. Second uh, Peter 1.9, he's listing out all of the marks of Christ-likeness and growing in our walk with Jesus, and he says this, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he speaks about love and he speaks about steadfastness and self-control, which leads us to meekness, which is strength under control. And the person who does not have these things has forgotten everything that he's been forgiven of, becomes a little bit prideful. And it follows that if you remember about how much you've been forgiven of, you will walk in meekness with other people. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. So we need to dwell on that uh, when we're struggling with meekness. We also need to be slow to judge. Uh, James 1.19 says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why does James say this? Well, because Solomon said, the one who states his case first seems right until he's cross-examined. The first one that states his case seems like he's right. Until somebody else starts asking the questions. We need to take time before we form judgments of other people. Uh, Spurgeon once said that small pots soon boil over. Um, Meaning that some people, as soon as they get a piece of gossip, they start to overflow with indignation right away. They start to make judgments on other people. They are quick to get angry. So we don't want to be the little pot that boils over. Uh, Be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, take time before we make judgments of other people. We also need to mimic the meek. Uh, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four 24 says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Um, a person that is habitually angry or given to anger or frustration or gossip um, is not a friend to you um, because what's going to happen is it's going to rub off on you. You hang out with people that are discontent, you're going to become discontent and a complainer as well. Uh, And the Bible says, don't choose those people as your friends. Don't mimic them. Be around people that are going to point you towards Christ, that are going to help cultivate Christ-likeness in your life. We also need to discern the hand of of God in the work of our enemies. This is a tough one, um, to discern God's hand in the work of our enemies. John 18, 11, Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? A theologian, Tom Watson asked, what made Christ so meek in his sufferings? And the answer is he did not look at Judas and he did not look at Pilate. He looked to the father. At one level, you could say that the sufferings of Jesus were caused by Judas's betrayal or Pilate's condemnation. And he could have been on the cross and said, look what Judas did to me, or look what Pilate did to me, but instead he looked to the Father, and he discerned God's hand, his will, even in the work of his enemies. As long as you see your life story as a series of things that people have done to you, then you're going to live in frustration, Uh, you're going to live in resentment and disappointment, If you are saying, look what these people have done to me, I am a result of this, you don't want to live there. You really don't. We have to drink the cup that the Lord has given us for a reason, yield to him, to his purpose in our life. That is a very difficult thing to do. Um, We're just talking about a friend yesterday um, whose wife passed away. She was 48. They have five kids. He's a pastor and it doesn't make any sense. Um, She got lung cancer. And like for no reason, seemingly, just nothing makes sense. And how do you uh, make sense of that with God? And, um, you know, you get to a point where you have to yield to him and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't like it, but, you know, I will yield to you and your purpose for my life. Uh, Makes me think of uh, David when Absalom, you know, ran him out of town when his son led a coup to take the throne from his dad. David heads out and there is one of Saul's descendants that is mocking him and is throwing stones at him and is cursing him as he is leaving. And Abishai, which is one of David's mighty men says, let me take that guy's head off. And David says, leave him alone. If he's doing this, God must've told him to do it. So this is the cup that I have to drink. And uh, later on, he gets what's coming to him. But at that point right there, David said, I'm going to let God take care of it. I'm not going to do it in my own power. I'm going to discern the, hand, discern the hand of God, even at the work of my enemies. And if we look to Jesus on the cross, when his enemies did their worst, they did not overcome him. We see the glory of the Son of God when he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's the way we want to live. That's what we want to be like. So we also ask for meekness and we walk with Jesus daily. We, you know, surround ourselves with him and with people that point us to the Lord. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I said this earlier, I quoted, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Um, a yoke joins two animals. The, the load is easier to bear when you're yoked together with someone else. Jesus says, yoke yourself to me. Let me pull the load learn from me because I'm weak. This is how you're going to find rest when you're yoked up with me. Uh, None of us have meekness uh, by nature, just naturally by nature. Uh, It only comes from Jesus's presence in our lives. And as we grow in him, as we mature, um, then we begin to look more like the Savior um, when we're bound to him and we're yoked to him. Um, We also need to, lastly, uh, we need to anticipate Uh, all that God has promised. Uh, We have those God's promises books back there, and they're chock full of promises that the Lord has given us, and we need to anticipate that. That word inherit is a really interesting word because it speaks of relationship. Uh, There aren't a lot of people out there that get a surprise inheritance. Uh, That would be nice to get a surprise inheritance, but that doesn't happen very often because people have relationship. Uh, Others have intentionally put them in their will, and when God uh, saved you, you, when he chose you, he puts you in his will and you get to inherit the land. Uh, When God adopted you into his family, uh, when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, the meek are the ones that he's going to give it to. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, They will gain a paradise. They'll gain a kingdom that is not earned through might but only through receiving it, only by yielding to him. Because we're in Christ, our place in his kingdom is secure, as secure as his. Christ is ours and Christ is God's. We are in him. When God looks at us, all he sees is his son. We are washed clean by his blood. And so we are to be those that uh, approach him humbly and walk in meekness with other people. Amen.